So meditation can be seen as a process um, enables us to let go, um, release ourselves from very uh, compulsive, compulsive mental and emotional habits, which can be sometimes just seemingly irritating or dithering buzz, or it can be quite impassioned. Um, and it's sometimes when we really start to restrain the mind, we recognize how uh, compulsive and these habits are, the outgoing, the adding, the proliferating, the scattering, the wondering, the worrying, the re- remembering, the resenting, and this um, psychologically, emotionally charged stuff. Now we can only really get to uh, release this if we're able to find, get some leverage on it. So the quality of firmness and concentration that's required is not to is a balance. It's not actually trying to just shut everything up but to provide a sense of firmness and restraint, clarity, purpose, so that the mind is not just swinging every which way and being pulled by thoughts and moods. This firmness is represented and supported by the body, bodily posture, which is a firm, grounded steadiness. And if you can, as you develop this, you can just keep referring to that firm, grounded steadiness. It acts rather like a a, a keynote. So when the mind has got, your attention has got something to be held by rather than by the push and pull of thoughts and moods and you can contemplate that very push and pull from a firm place this is the holding that allows release without holding there is no release you don't have the uh, ground, you don't have the the leverage to release things from. Sometimes meditation is just a matter of, of sitting firmly and sensing that and taking an interest in it. The sense of taking interest in it is really crucial. It doesn't happen, though the body can be there. You have to be interested in it. You have to make it important, more important than the topics and the thoughts and the future and the past. This is... uh, A keynote of meditation. Can we be really interested in the firm presence, which is simple, steady, still? You take you taking the sitting posture. The upright spine, the head balanced so that the head is approximately directly above the pelvic region. So you can almost feel the weight of the skull transferring down the spine to the spinal root. So the neck 
can be free. You don't have the neck muscles binding and you can begin to release and relax some of the stress that the body goes through, through being unbalanced. So imagine the spine is rather like um, a series of small bones, which it is, balanced on top of each other and on top of it, this very fine point of the neck, the neck bones, this large ball of bone, the skull. How would you balance that? You may want to to draw the, the face back Take an interest in it. It's for your welfare. If you can relax the neck, size of the neck, you can send that message down the arms and the chest. There's nothing they have to hold. So breathing in and breathing out as you breathe out follow that feeling of breathing out by relaxing down the chest and the arms so if you're drawing something pulling something gently down your arms and the tips of the fingers just draining it Make the posture firm by experimenting with the pressing down into the ground through the pelvis, through the buttocks. Just the gentle pressure that gives you a sense of the spine being lifted through that pressure. So you're not holding yourself up. You're pushing gently down and letting that downward push cause uh, the spine to lift. So relaxing the upper body, pushing down, and you get this natural effect of the spine being lifted, the upper body being lifted. So the upper body has to be light enough, loose enough to allow that. And just gently pushing down draws your energy down to the lower body where you feel more grounded, earthed. Feel how your as your out breath completes itself, feel how that feels low down in the abdomen completion of an out-breath. Let the in-breath happen naturally. In due time. So our effort actually is like a earthing, breathing out, going down. As you complete the out-breath, Let it go all the way out, relax, and let the in-breath happen. Let it complete itself, swelling through the body. Till it turns into an out-breath. Take an interest in that. Every breath is slightly different. Feel what happens. The energy, how the mind is affected by that, how the body is affected by that. 
and be firm. Be firm in your attitude. You're not trying to control the breathing, but protecting that whole process from the confusions and agitations of thought. So imagine it like that, like it is a protective firmness, guarding the breathing, guarding the body, guarding the calm of the mind. using the attention on the breathing that to interrupt the rhythm, to, to, mold, to mold the rhythm of the mind. The thinking mind has got a very fast rhythm. The emotions have surging. The body rhythm is slower. So you're deliberately molding the energy by attending to something that takes its own time is not going my way is not solving anything is not finding anything is just breathing out releasing letting in breath happen and being receptive enough Follow the whole process of that.
when you find you find your the moods and thoughts pick up and you're swirling in them at the moment of acknowledgement and then ask the question where's the body what's happening in the body can you feel it feel tight or tense or dizzy or then catch the next out breath and be with that until it completes and that few seconds of just being with something that's simple and natural releasing what it's like to just open to a free breath the freedom of an in-breath that just happens and fills you what it feels like to have an energy that picks you up without you having to believe something, do something get something going just to feel that gentle fullness occurs with each in-breath how, it, how your body swells with it how your skin tingles with it This is precious. This is our companion for life.
the first sense is to establish the, the breathing to a balance the body around the breathing so the breathing is not cramped restricted the upper the upper body is open and loose so the breathing can swell you get the uplift from that the solar plexus the diaphragm are uncramped so the breathing can descend you get the deepening steadying groundedness try to relax and attune your muscles and body structure around this breathing where you need to lengthen We need to relax. In the diaphragm, the solar plexus can be quite tight. You might find particular points of pressure, a restriction. attitude towards these not to make them release but just attending to them without pressure or panic or urgency just feeling the pressures and how the breath moves into that is anywhere where one can let go allow the breathing to be full to the degree to which the breathing feels full and complete Receiving that, just picking that up, attending to that, letting your heart, your emotional state rest in that, trusting it, so having established the breathing now, just receiving it. being calmed by that
the degree to which you experience the quality of calm, being held, being received, letting yourself be, feel that, how in the breathing just flows through, you can sit back with that. How much effort, how much thought, how much is needed? Does the inclination to keep being present? You can feel against that background, that quality of calm and steadiness, the swelling, the urging of mental habits. perhaps causing uh, some tension to occur in the head, tightening in the chest. So practice is, is this, there's this quality of firmness and calm. Isn't this more useful, more, more rewarding? Is it possible to put aside those compulsions feel what they feel like the stress of them you have a choice it's an important one during this time of meditation just experiment what's it like to choose the path of letting go of being held and letting go it's it's during this period of time give it a test take an interest in it dedicate yourself to it to really know what this is like
in, in coming out of meditation. Remember to keep the sense of that firmness, the inner collection. And from that place and with that attitude of not hurrying, not jumping, not tangling, Start to open the sense doors, beginning with the sense of hearing. So from our place of grounded stillness, hearing the voice, the silence, rain on the window, and just letting that Hearingness, just brushing, touching the stillness. This too is is very useful to cultivate. Not that you're not hearing, but just that. through the visual sense allowing the light to enter one's awareness and shapes and patterns keeping up the organ of the eye quite still and restful. movement of the thinking mind, feel a few of those come up, thoughts, as they come up just for a few moments just try allowing them to come and let them dissolve without doing anything, you gain a sense of independence from thought, you're not bound to it. And frame your awareness around the skillful thought May I be well. May other beings be well.
Now for a brief reading. This may help with some of the practices or some of the experience we have in our daily life. It's called Widening the Circle of Compassion by a a Tibetan teacher, Pima Chodron. When we talk of compassion, we usually mean working with those less fortunate than ourselves because we have better opportunities of good education and good health we should be compassionate towards those poor people who don't have any of that however in working with the teachings on how to awaken compassion and in trying to help others we might come to realize that compassionate action involves working with ourselves as much as working with others Compassionate action is a practice, one of the most advanced. There's nothing more advanced than relating with others. There's nothing more advanced than communication, compassionate communication. To relate with others compassionately is a challenge. Really communicating to the heart and being there for someone else, a child, spouse, parent, client, patient, or the homeless woman on the street, means not shutting down on that person which means first of all not shutting down on ourselves this means allowing ourselves to feel what we feel and not pushing it away it means accepting every aspect of ourselves even the parts we don't like to do this requires openness which in Buddhism is sometimes called emptiness not fixating or holding on to anything Only in an open, non-judgmental space can we acknowledge what we are feeling. Only in an open space where we're not all caught up in our own version of reality can we see and hear and feel who others really are, which allows us to be with them and communicate with them properly. Recently I was talking with an old man who has been living on the streets for the last four years Nobody ever looks at him. No one ever talks to him. Maybe somebody gives him a little money. But nobody ever looks in his face and asks him how he's doing. The feeling that he doesn't exist for other people, the sense of loneliness and isolation, is intense. He reminded me that the essence of compassionate speech or compassionate action is to be there for people without pulling back in horror or fear or anger being compassionate is a pretty tall order all of us are in relationships every day of our lives but particularly if we are people who want to help others people with cancer, people with AIDS abused women or children, abused animals anyone who's hurting something we soon notice is that the person we set out to help may trigger unresolved issues in us Even though we want to help, maybe we do help for a few days or a month or two, sooner or later someone walks through that door and pushes all our buttons. We find ourselves hating those people or scared of them or feeling like we just can't handle them. This is true always if we are sincere about wanting to benefit others. Sooner or later, all our own unresolved issues will come up. We'll be confronted with ourselves. 
Roshi Bernard Glassman is a Zen teacher who runs a project for the homeless in Yonkers, New York. Last time I heard him speak, he said something that struck me. He said he doesn't really do this work to help others. He does it because he feels that moving into the areas of society that he had rejected is the same as working with the parts of himself that he had rejected. Although this is ordinary Buddhist teaching, it's difficult to live it. It's even difficult to hear that what we reject out there is what we reject in ourselves, and what we reject in ourselves is what we're going to reject out there. But that, in a nutshell, is how it works. We find ourselves unworkable and give up on ourselves, then we'll find others unworkable and give up on them. What we hate in ourselves, will hate in others. To the degree that we have compassion for ourselves, we will also have compassion for others. Having compassion starts and ends with having compassion for all those unwanted parts of ourselves, all those imperfections that we don't even want to look at. Compassion isn't some kind of self-improvement project, or ideal that we're trying to live up to. There's a slogan in the Mahayana teachings that says, drive all blames into oneself. The essence of this slogan is, when it hurts so bad, it's because I'm hanging on so tight. It's not saying that we should beat ourselves up. It's not advocating martyrdom. What it implies is that pain comes from holding so tightly to having our own way and that one of the main exits we take when we find ourselves uncomfortable, when we find ourselves in an unwanted situation or an unwanted place, is to blame. We habitually erect a barrier called blame that keeps us from communicating genuinely with others. And we fortify it with our concepts of who's right and who's wrong. We do that with the people who are closest to us. And we do it with political systems. With all kinds of things that we don't like about our associates or our society. It's a very common, ancient, well-perfected device for trying to feel better. Blame others. Blaming is a way to protect our hearts to try to protect what is soft and open and tender in ourselves. Rather than own that pain, we scramble to find some comfortable ground. This slogan is a helpful and interesting suggestion that we could begin to shift that deep-seated, ancient, habitual tendency to hang on to having everything on our own terms. The way to start would be First, when we feel the tendency to blame, we try to get in touch with what it feels like to be holding on to ourselves so tightly. What does it feel like to blame? How does it feel to reject? What does it feel like to hate? What does it feel like to be righteously indignant? In each of us, there's a lot of softness, a lot of heart. Touching that soft spot has to be the starting place. This is what compassion is all about. When we stop blaming long enough to give ourselves an open space in which to feel our soft spot, as if we're reaching down to touch a large wound that lies right underneath the protective shell that blaming builds. Buddhist words such as compassion and emptiness don't mean much until we start cultivating our innate ability simply to be there with pain, with an open heart, and the willingness to not to instantly try to get ground under our feet. For instance, if what we're feeling is rage, we, sh- sh- we usually assume that there are only two ways to relate to it. One is to blame others. Lay it all on somebody else. Drive all blames into everyone else. The other alternative is to feel guilty about our rage and blame ourselves. Blame is a way in which we solidify ourselves. Not only do we point the finger when something is wrong, but we also want to make things 
right. In any relationship that we stick with, be it marriage, parenthood, employment, a spiritual community or whatever, we, almost have, we may also find that we want to make it righter than it is because we're a little nervous. Maybe it isn't exactly living up to our standards. So we justify it and justify it and try to make it extremely right. We tell everybody that our husband or wife or child or teacher or support group is doing some sort of peculiar antisocial thing for good spiritual reasons. Or we come up with some dogmatic belief and hold on to it with a vengeance, again to solidify our ground. We have some sense that we have to make things right according to our standards. We just can't stick with the situation any longer then it goes over the edge and we make it wrong because we think that's our only alternative. Something's right or something's wrong. We start with ourselves, we make ourselves right or we make ourselves wrong every day, every week, every month and year of our lives. We feel that we have to be right so that we can feel good. We don't want to be wrong because that makes it, then we'll feel bad. But we could be more compassionate towards all these parts of ourselves. When we feel right, we can look at that. Feeling right can feel good. We can be completely sure of how right we are and have a lot of people agreeing with us about how right we are. But suppose someone does not agree with us. Then what happens? We find ourselves getting angry and aggressive. If we look into the very moment of anger or aggression, we might see that this is what wars are made of this is what race riots are made of feeling that we can have to be right being thrown off and righteously indignant when someone disagrees with us on the other hand when we find ourselves feeling wrong convinced that we're wrong getting solid about being wrong we could also look at that The whole right and wrong business closes us down and makes our world smaller. Wanting situations and relationships to be solid, permanent and graspable obscures the pith of the matter, which is that things are fundamentally groundless. Instead of making others right or wrong or bottling up right and wrong in ourselves, there's a middle way, a very powerful middle way, We could see it as sitting on the razor's edge, not falling off to the right or the left. This middle way involves not hanging on to our version so tightly. It involves keeping our hearts and minds open long enough to entertain the idea that when we make things wrong, we do it out of a desire to attain some kind of ground or security. Equally, when we make things right, we're still trying to obtain some kind of ground or security. Could our minds and our hearts be big enough just to hang out in that space where we're not entirely certain about who's right and who's wrong? Could we have no agenda when we walk into a room with another person, not know what to say, not make that person wrong or right? Could we see, hear, feel other people as they really are, It is powerful to practice this way because we'll find ourselves continually rushing around trying to try to feel secure again, to make ourselves or them either right or wrong. But true communication can happen only in that open space. Whether it's ourselves, our lovers, bosses, children, local Scrooge or the political situation, It's more daring and real not to shut anyone out of our hearts and not to make the other into an enemy. If we begin to live like this, we'll find that we actually can't make things completely right or completely wrong anymore because things are a lot more slippery and playful than that. Everything is ambiguous. Everything is always shifting and changing and there are as many different takes on any given situation as there are people involved. Trying to find absolute rights and wrongs is a trick. We plan ourselves to feel secure and comfortable. 
this leads to a bigger underlying issue for all of us. How are we ever going to change anything? How is there going to be less aggression in the universe rather than more? We can then bring it down to a more personal level. How do I learn to communicate with somebody who is hurting me or someone who is hurting a lot of people? How do I speak to someone so that some change actually occurs? How do I communicate so that the space opens up and both of us begin to touch into some kind of basic intelligence that we all share? In a potentially violent encounter, how do I communicate so that neither of us becomes increasingly furious and aggressive? How do I communicate to the heart so that the stuck situation can ventilate? How do I communicate so that things that seem frozen, unworkable and eternally aggressive begin to soften up and some kind of compassionate exchange begins to happen? Well, it starts with being willing to feel what we are going through. It starts with being willing to have a compassionate relationship with the parts of ourselves that we feel are not worthy of existing on the planet. If we are willing through meditation to be mindful not only of what feels comfortable but also of what pain feels like, if we even aspire to stay awake and open to what we are feeling, to recognize and acknowledge it as best we can in each moment, then something begins to change. Compassionate action, being there for others, being able to act and speak in a way that communicates, starts with seeing ourselves when we start to make ourselves right or make ourselves wrong. At that particular point we could just contemplate the fact there is a larger alternative to either of these, a more tender, shaky kind of place where we could live. This place, if we can touch it, will help us to train ourselves throughout our lives to open further to whatever we feel, to open further rather than shut down more. We'll find that as we begin to commit ourselves to this practice, as we begin to have a sense of celebrating the aspects of ourselves that we find so impossible before, something will shift in us, something will shift permanently in us, our ancient habitual patterns will begin to soften. We'll begin to see the faces and hear the words of people who are talking to us. If we begin to get in touch with whatever we feel with some kind of kindness, our protective shells will melt. We'll find that more areas of our lives are workable. As we learn to have compassion for ourselves, the circle of compassion for others what and whom we can work with and how becomes wider. Amen.